All right, welcome to the first of its kind, world-changing manufacturers network. Lisa Ryan has her ears to the ground and her heart in the game. Get ongoing education and new connections right here with Lisa and the manufacturers network. Buckle your seat, listen, and spread the word. Here's Lisa. Hey, it's Lisa Ryan. Welcome to the Manufacturers Network podcast. I'm excited to introduce our guest today, Brian Dubois. Brian is the Director of Industrial AI at Rovasys, a leading global system integrator for manufacturing and industrial clients. With 20 plus years of expertise in manufacturing software and level three information solutions, Brian excels at implementing AI data infrastructure, and advanced analytics to boost productivity in the sector. So, Brian, welcome to the show. Thanks, Lisa. So share with us a little bit about your background and what led you to doing what you're doing at Rovasys. Yeah, so I just, I started at Rovasys, actually, I co-opted Rovasys and then started right out of college. So for a total of 23 years at Rovasys, which you don't see a lot nowadays, folks no. sticking around for that kind of longevity. But, and so I've done, a, worn a lot of different hats at Rovasys, started out programming for manufacturers. So Rovasys focuses entirely on manufacturing and industrial customers. Started out writing software. We wrote things, if you're familiar with manufacturing execution systems, MES, we didn't call it that because it really hadn't been named yet, but that was what we were effectively doing was we were building custom MESs for, for customers. And then just worked through, did a lot of different things and worked a lot with historians, which I'm sure we'll talk about today. And then in 2019, Robusus actually had our 30th anniversary in 2019. And one of the conversations was, what should we be doing next? What should we be looking at next? And the decision was made to create a new division, an industrial AI division. And I was appointed the director of it. And the message was basically like, we know we should be doing this. Um, figure it out, <laughs> figure out what's the state of the art, what kind of a team do you need to make this successful and go find customers, talk to customers and make it a reality. And so that's what I've been doing for the last almost four years now and having a great time doing it. Wow. Well, and it just seemed this is such a great time for this conversation because we cannot look at anything online, on the radio, on television without somebody talking about AI and how the technology is just exploding. What do you think are some of the most significant challenges as well as the opportunities for manufacturers in this new space? In this AI space? Yeah, I think that one of the things that we are seeing with early adopters of AI in manufacturing is, is we are seeing those big productivity boosts that they're looking for. We're seeing the one, 2%, maybe even double digit percent in improvements in throughput in reduction in scrap. And in certain processes, that's multi-million dollar why right there. And these are processes that oftentimes are already, they might be 20, 30 year old processes that are already pretty optimized. And so AI, the opportunities are that AI is going to give you those stepwise improvements that we're looking for. And some of the existing, we've squeezed all the productivity out of some of these existing lines. And so now we can look at leveraging AI to, to give that, that, that big boost. The challenges are actually not really that different. Like I've spent my whole career doing these types of technology projects with manufacturers. So the challenges are not really all that different. Organizational change management, 
which you'll hear me talk about a lot today, making sure that you've got buy-in from the top all the way down to the operators on the line, making sure that those operators have a seat at the table right from the beginning with these projects. And the typical issues that you have with companies who get really excited about technology and I love that. And I, I don't want to go into these meetings and just put a, a bucket of cold water on their dreams of, around technology, but I always try to bring the conversation back to use cases. These types of, of projects are only successful if you start with use cases first. You need to be thinking about the ROI and the benefits that that the technology can bring, and then we'll start applying the technology to it. But if you go in technology first and you say, here's this whiz-bang technology, where can we fit it in or where can we plug it in? That's typically not where you're going to find a lot of success. So give us an example of a, a, a way to get started. Like how would a manufacturer discover that first process or decide so that they are bringing the process first and then looking for ways to use the technology versus, like you said, the technology first. Yeah. Yeah. How do you get to those use cases? And it's, and it's a question I get a lot from customers is and they'll even say, okay, we want to do digital transformation, or I'll get a call from a director of transformation, digital transformation or a VP of industry, industrial 4.0. And they're like, where do we even start? So typically the place that we start with them is that we sit down and we do a workshop of some sort with them. And so we're typically, it's about a half day workshop and the goal of that workshop is to generate use cases. Like we believe so strongly that these projects need to start with use cases first. So by the end of that, we've now generated, and it's not us generating it. It's the folks who are actually, we try to get in that meeting, a cross-section of operations and engineering and maintenance and quality and management. We we work with them to generate these use cases. And, and part of that is identifying, are these low-hanging fruit? Are they high impact and low cost? Those are typically the types of use cases you want to start with. And so now we can generate sometimes 30, 40, 50 use cases coming out of that workshop. And so then the question just becomes, where do you want to start? And so we then we typically do an assessment. That's going to put some meat on the bone. The use case at this point is a couple sentences. So we pick one or two of those. We're going to do an assessment. That's going to, you put the meat on the bone and we're going to go in and we're going to talk to all the people that would be impact, impacted by that use case. We're going to look at what data they have available to actually make that use case a reality. And now you've got, and then we're going to give them an estimate for what a project like that would cost. And now you've got an actual executable project. You can put it in your budget for a given fiscal year. And now we can actually start in. But that process of start small, build ROI, let that snowball into the next project and the next project, walk before you run, that I feel like is unique in our industry because what we hear instead is you have the big IT consulting companies who come in and they say, give us 20 million and we'll solve all your problems or we'll give you digital transformation. It doesn't work. We've gotten into a lot of those customers where they've spent a couple of years on that, a couple million dollars, and they really don't have a lot to show for it. And so we feel like this is a much more bottom-up approach and much more practical approach to get to where the digital transformation future that they're trying to get to. And that also, the, I like the bottom-up approach because if you walk in, there's so many people working in manufacturing, your hourly employees that are terrified of this type of transformation because it's immediately going to lead to them losing their jobs is what they're thinking. So getting their ideas, their processes and doing the slow, okay, let's show you how this works. Now we can move to the next one. But when you're starting to have those conversations with employees who are going to be impacted in some way, 
How do you build the trust? How do you get them involved in the conversation? And it's being the director of industrial AI, it's one of the most common questions I get is, are you putting people out of work? And the reality of it is that I've been at this now for over 20 years. I've never seen one of our projects lead to a labor reduction. As you, Lisa, these companies can't get enough people to work. They're desperate for people. The last thing they're going to do is lay people off because of a technology project. They're going to reallocate those people to higher value tasks. And honestly, those folks... They don't want to be doing this. I talk to people all the time who are spending four, eight hours a week building Excel reports, and that's not their job. They don't want to be doing that. That's not fulfilling work by any stretch of the imagination. So if we can automate that, and let's say that I can pull that data automatically from some of those systems, and I can automatically generate some of those reports, that frees four to eight hours a week up for that person to do higher value tasks. And that's really how these always go. You do have to build some trust, but one of the things we're going to talk a little bit about some of the more advanced advanced AI that we're doing. But part of it is that you actually have to extract some of the skills and strategies from your best, your 10, 15 year operators and engineers. You have to extract those strategies from them. And they're excited to talk about this. I said recently, I was, if you've got, let's say you've got Bill and he's a 15 year operator and he has spent his 15 years being able to just run that line, he's as as good as anyone, the better, the best in the business, and he can run that line as good as possible. Who's he going to talk to about that? He's if he goes to the bar after a shift, his buddies don't want to hear anything about it. If he goes home, I can guarantee you, his wife doesn't want to hear anything more about how right. he's able to squeeze a little more productivity. But I sit down with him with humility, right? And I sit down with Bill and I say, tell me everything about how you got so good at running this line. And he's excited to talk to me about that. He's thrilled. So it's really not as hard as people think to get people to buy into this and to get excited. I've also had situations where folks, they're close to retirement. This happened with a pipeline customer and they were the best production scheduler that the pipeline had. And we were going to build an AI system that would try to build production schedules as well as this person. And they saw this as their legacy. Like this was a way for them to pass on that. This is their work. This is what they've spent their whole life getting good at. And they saw this as an opportunity to pass that on before they, they retired. It actually is not as hard as people think. And no, it does not lead to massive layoffs or anything like that. But I love that legacy language because yeah, people want to be a part of something that's bigger than they are. We realize that, that people at some point are going to age out of mm-hmm. what they're doing and just being able, and we lose so much of that company history of that expertise as our tenured employees are walking out the door. So what a great language to use. And like you said, to be able to talk to employees who are excited about what they do, but nobody else on the planet understands it. So you've mentioned a couple times Industry 4.0, so the fourth industrial revolution. What exactly is that? What does that mean? And Yeah, so we can go through the whole history of it. But in terms of an Industry 4.0, this really is the marriage of digitalization to the existing technology and approaches and equipment that we've had. I think part of the challenge with defining what Industry 4.0 is that we're still living it. Mm -hmm. And so it's hard to say where this is going to end up. Now, in my role, I've got a narrow focus on AI. So I do feel like when we're done with this Industry 4.0 era, I think that we'll find that the destination was artificial intelligence. The destination was all the work that we're doing now in terms of data, digital 
digital transformation, collecting that data, correlating it, I do believe was to get us to an AI future, because I think that's the only thing we can collect that data and we can get some great insights and analytics from it. But until you can get those big wins and those big stepwise improvements that we've seen with the transition of every other industrial revolution, I think that's really where it's going to end up being the outcome of this one. So in your experience, what are some of the best practices for integrating a new data pipeline into somebody has an existing infrastructure to, to, so that they don't cause a lot of disruption in their operations? Yeah. And every customer is different, but we have sort of a playbook that we go by. And one, one of the first things is that we implement historians. So as I'm sure you're aware, historian time series database, we use it on the plant floor to collect data and it uses lossy compression to store massive amounts of process data. So that's typically one of our first plays. If a customer doesn't have a historian at all, we're going in and we're saying, you got to start there because if you're not collecting the data, you can't do anything else. All these ideas and visions you have in your head, of analytics and AI and all that. You can't do any of that if you don't have the data. So we got to collect the data first and historians are the most efficient way to do that. If they have historians, process historians, which most of our customers at least have a couple, now we're talking about an enterprise historian. So we're going to pull all that data up into one single time series database. Oftentimes nowadays it's living in the cloud. That's fine. That's no problem. And then Finally, we're going to marry that process data to the transactional and relational data that's coming up off the plant floor. That's really the panacea. That's what customers want is they want to see, okay, if this transaction happened in my MES system, what's the process data that was associated with it at that moment? And now we can start to do some really interesting analytics. Everything I just described causes zero downtime. None of that would cause any kind of disruption within a plant. We can hook up a historian without causing with without even having to stop the line because it's a passive data read. So it's not impacting anything that's happening on the line. So we do those types of projects all the time. And again, I, it's, it's one of those things that that data infrastructure, I oftentimes say I end up being the bearer of bad news in these meetings because the customer brings me in and they want to talk AI and I want to talk AI. And so we talk, start talking about all that. And then we get to the point and I start asking them, what's your data infrastructure? We've got a bunch of disconnected skids and we've got a little data logger on each one, but nothing's really networked. And I'm like, oh boy. <laughs> okay, uh-huh. guys. So let's pivot now because we've got to talk about a data infrastructure project first to be able to pull all this data together because the AI, it can't go out and know where any of that data is. It doesn't have any idea. In fact, one of the challenges with getting over the hype of AI with folks is showing them that these AI algorithms are actually really, really dumb. They need everything spoon fed to them. They need millions, hundreds of thousands to millions of rows of clean correlated data. If it gets to the hundred thousandth row and there's a date missing, it just bails on the whole thing and you got to start all over again. So there's a lot of care and feeding that it takes to even get to that point. But yeah, again, those data infrastructure projects are zero disruption and we can get those done relatively quickly. And how long, how much history would you have to collect before starting on the process? So it's a good question. And it depends on the problem that you're trying to solve. But I know that one of the challenges that I face is I go up against these vendors in this space. So we're a system integrator, right? So we don't have any products of our own. We just integrate 
other vendors' products. And we're independent. So we are not married to any one platform or anything like that. But one of the challenges that we face is we're up against these vendors who are going into these meetings with the customer and getting them really excited. And there's a lot of hand-waving around that question. (laughs) Oh, no, you'll be fine. You'll be fine. And particularly for things like predictive maintenance, unless you've had that specific failure in the historical record, it's almost impossible to teach this system to predict when that type of a failure is going to happen. You need a lot of data and you need... And again, if it, depending on the project and the problem you're trying to solve, if it's predictive maintenance, you need those failures to be in the historical record. And mm. you can build a predictive maintenance system that can now, so let's say you've had three different major failures and they all were caused by different things. And okay, so you can build a predictive maintenance system that can predict now those three, these, those three things. But the fourth one that you didn't anticipate and that you've never seen before You've got no way to predict that. So there's very, there's definite limitations on that. And it's actually why we don't lead as Rovisys. We don't lead with predictive maintenance as the primary, as the primary driver for these projects. We like to focus on predictive quality and what we call autonomous AI and autonomous AI. That's the future. That's the real stuff. What does that mean? So autonomous AI is, it incorporates deep reinforcement learning, deep reinforcement learning. It came on the scene in 2016. It came out of DeepMind, which was a Google spinoff. And they created, it was a novel way of doing machine learning. And they created this algorithm that could actually learn by doing. And so they started by making AlphaGo. And then they went on to beat our best grandmaster at Go, a guy named Lee Sedal, beat him, AlphaGo beat him four to one. And then they went on to create AlphaZero, which was a chess program. It beat all our chess grandmasters. It beat all our best chess software. Then they went on to make AlphaStar, which beat our best StarCraft players. So they were on to something here. And the way that it learns is instead of by data, hundreds of thousands, millions of rows of data, like which is the traditional supervised learning approach, it learns by doing. And so we're actually building for customers simulators of certain parts of their process. And then we let this, this autonomous AI loose on it. And it actually learns, it plays and it learns to get better and better. And so it'll run for hours, but by the time it's done, it's like a 50 or hundred year operator and it knows all the ins and outs. And then we're feeding it, we call it lessons. So we're feeding it scenarios like, okay, what happens if this piece of equipment goes down? What happens if this piece of equipment is not running at its full throughput? What happens if you've got a hot batch from a customer, your biggest customer that comes in and you got to prioritize that over everything else? So it's it's learning all these crazy edge scenarios and things, and it's becoming like a human operator. And so Autonomous AI, we've got a number of customers that are implementing this now. And what we're seeing is this is the big step change improvement. This is where we think that the whole industry is going. So there's so many advantages of AI, obviously, from everything we've talked about. And on the other hand, it can also be extraordinarily scary. So what are some of the things that manufacturers need to really look out for, prepare for on the dark side of AI? Yeah. So really, there's only two kinds of AI, at least the Rovisys gets involved in. It's the supervised learning. So that's predicting a value predictive quality, predictive maintenance. And that's where you give it a bunch of data and it's going to predict a value. And all it can ever do is predict one value. Here's the number of days until that piece of equipment goes down, or here's what the final quality of that batch is probably going to be, right? It's going to can predict one value. What you do with that is up to you. So what action you take based on that prediction is up to you, the operator, the engineer, the supervisor, whoever's seeing that, that prediction. So there's nothing really scary about that. Like you're just hopefully getting some new insight. The autonomous AI 
that's where it gets a little a little spookier because many of our customers see this as a long-term way to actually train that it's we call it a brain so a neural network trained through autonomous ai is called a brain a lot of our customers are seeing an opportunity to hook that brain directly into control that's something that we actually we always have to hit the brakes on and we say okay with these projects, the first thing we're going to do, we have to validate it, the brain and the decisions that it's making. But the second thing we do then once we validated it is we put it into production in what's called a, de a decision support system. So it's there in the control room and the decisions that the brain is making are being shown on a screen next to the HMI, but the operator is ultimately making the final decision as to whether he or she thinks it's a good idea to implement that change. Long-term, once that's been proven out, we are eventually, our customers are looking at this and saying, okay, we trust the system now. We trust the brain to make good decisions. We're going to go ahead and hook it in. But keep in mind that it can't do anything that a human operator couldn't do. So even a human operator works within certain bounds. They can't just crank a knob and have the machine go haywire. And there's certain protections that are all already built into the control system. So if you trust a one or two year operator in off the street to run your line, the brain can't do anything that human operator can't do. And what about safety, the issue of safety? Is there anything we hear about all the ransomware and cyber hacking and all of that? Where does AI fall into that or these type of systems? Yeah, and it's absolutely a concern. In in 2010, the world saw the first ever control system virus, and that was Stuxnet, which was a state actor that that released a virus in an Iranian. It was uranium enrichment in Iran, and so it was made to target that. And then, of course, you saw copycats of that virus, and so that was a big concern. That was a big wake up in 2010 for our industry that we needed to really focus on locking down these plant control networks. And so there's been a ton of focus there. We actually have a group that we started around 2010 that just does industrial networking and cybersecurity. And so they do all of that work to lock down the plant network. More recently, you had the Colonial Pipeline. I don't know if you heard about that, the Colonial right, Pipeline yeah. incident, right? So ransomware that got lo let loose in the business network and basically just eviscerated the business network. But one thing that people don't really talk about is that because they did have good cybersecurity practices, they're that virus never jumped over to the controls network. So they never lost control of the pipeline. That's mm -hmm. the real safety concern, right? So the, when they had to shut down and you saw lines for gas and things like that in the Southeast, the reason why was because they couldn't bill. <laughs> Their business systems okay. were down, but they never lost control of the pipeline. And so that's really the key the key focus there. But that stuff is, and that's not even AI. That just goes back to the, what we've been preaching for a decade, which is lock down your plant control network, follow good practices. We build DMZs, we build all kinds of protections into that. And now there's actually companies that build modules that run on the plant control network and watch for bad traffic and weird traffic and things like that. And those do use some AI, but that's, that's just good practice. And we've been doing that now for a long time. So as we're starting to get to the end of our time together, can you share an example of a successful digital transformation project that you worked on? Yeah, this is one I always love to tell this story because it was just so cool. So this was a midstream refining company, and they came to us with a vision to build a transformation of their enterprise. And so they they wanted to install a historian, and they wanted to build a NASA-style control room where they would have 
representatives from all their different facilities across the entire enterprise and have a big board that showed the entire operation of every part of the enterprise. They could drill all the way down to an individual compressor. And so it was a just such an audacious, audacious project, but we, and they wanted it all done in 18 months. And we said, we would never recommend that you try to do something like that in 18 months. Oh, and it had AI, it had each of the compressors that had a vibration puck that was attached to it. So there was 1500 of those. They were going up to the, the internet to determine if there was a maintenance issue with it. And so they came to us and we said, if you've got the buy-in, then we'll do it. And so at its peak, I think we had maybe 20 engineers working on this project, but believe it or not, they did it in 18 months. And the only way they were able to do that is that they had buy-in from the CEO on down. Every single person we talked to was marching towards this goal. It was a, they spent tens of millions of dollars, but they claimed that they got that back within one year. And that was on collaboration between their different sites. So they had situations in the past where an upstream site had an issue and they're so busy fixing it. They forgot to call the downstream site and say, you're going to have a problem in a couple of days. And so now all of representatives from all of those were in that control center and they were all working together to solve the problem. And they were all communicating back to their home base. Now, what's interesting about that is, is we wrapped that thing up right before COVID hit. So while they don't go to a centralized uh, NASA control center uh, like they they originally planned, all of those folks were able to see all of that those displays from their home, and they were all able to collaborate. And basically, they were able to have all the same benefits from home during COVID and be able to run that enterprise. When I talk to people about that, when I say digital transformation, that's what I mean. That may not be what digital transformation looks like for your company, but you want to talk about digitalization having a transformative effect on an organization. That's what that is. They didn't operate the same after we were done with that project. And so that to me is, I just loved that project. It was just so cool. So, wow. Wow. So, if so, what would be your very best tip? Somebody's listening to this podcast and they've been thinking about kicking around the idea of bringing in some more AI what would be the best way for them to get started? So it's going to sound self-serving, but I would say get an SI involved, even if it's not yeah. us. An independent system integrator, like an independent financial advisor or something. There's just value in having an expert in the room who is not tied to any one particular platform or technology, who is there just to make sure that your project is a success. Start with that. Start with use cases and start, make sure you've got organizational change management as part of it from the beginning. Make sure that the folks whose lives are going to be impacted by this project have a say and have a seat at the table right from the beginning because it's so important. Awesome. Brian, if somebody did want to continue the conversation with you, what's the best way for them to get a hold of you? Yeah. So if you go to rovasis.com slash AI, that takes you to our AI, the AI portion of the Rovasis website. And there's a link down at the bottom there to get a hold of me, or they can always find me on LinkedIn. It's Brian Deboy, B-R-Y-A-N-D-E-B-O-I-S at LinkedIn. And you can find me there. And I will put both of those in the show notes as well. So Brian, it has been such a pleasure having you on the show today. Thanks so much for joining me. Absolutely. Thanks, Lisa. I'm Lisa Ryan, and this is the Manufacturers Network Podcast. We'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to the Manufacturers Network Podcast. Do me a favor and share this podcast with your friends and colleagues so we can grow this network and connect more fantastic folks just like you. You can either send your buddies to the website at manufacturers-network.com or share the Manufacturers Network podcast on your LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or wherever you and your industry friends hang out. 
The bigger and faster we grow the network, the stronger and deeper the community will all have. Thanks again, and I appreciate you.